0: tas bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato Samma Sa. <coughs> okay friends, so yesterday we were talking about the first five steps the noble eightfold path, and uh, understanding that uh, you know the right understanding is uh, that first step of undertaking anything. One, one should understand what you know one is doing, and basically it's the, one's uh, view of the world. But based on one's right view one's idea of what the world is, what life is, or the purpose of life, what the mind is, then uh, one, (coughs) depending on that right view, then that's the way you're going to to think. And the way you think is the way you're going to speak, and then act, and then even live your life. Uh, Now we come to the right effort And, basically, the right effort means the effort to do all the above. The effort to practice cultivating right view, which means also getting a, you know, if you're really serious about the the teachings of the Buddha, to get a good uh, knowledge of that. And then we use that to reflect upon. And then when you meditate, it's easier for the mind to kind of gravitate to that uh, type of uh, mindfulness. But the right effort has four, four parts to it, also. It's called the effort to prevent unwholesome states from coming into your mind, although that's very difficult to do. But uh, so the effort to prevent the negative states of mind from coming into you, but when they do come in, the effort to them out. Now, you can't really prevent them from coming until you've already attained the second and third stages of enlightenment. Uh, So, you know, but the preventing also means avoiding the type of places that you know uh, pull your buttons or uh, that uh, test your temptations, that you may not be strong enough yet to uh you know resist so we get lured or tempted to uh indulge in some unskillful uh behavior that we you know we were trying to you know overcome so you don't you, you to prevent means don't visit those places if you have trouble with alcohol don't go to bars if you have trouble with uh well, I won't mention certain vices but you know yeah, don't don't go there right if you have trouble with food, don't walk down to the street with all the pastry shops on it, you know. So you kind of avoid going to those places where, uh, you know, the the mind will just be uh, kind of tempted. Uh, later on, when you've, uh, you know, developed yourself quite a bit, then it wouldn't matter too much whether you go to those places or, or not. Uh, but the effort to... Uh, uh, Drive out unwholesome states when they come. That's probably the the more active part, and especially in meditation, but also out of meditation, in one's daily life. <clears throat> but we like to entertain our negative thoughts, right? So nice to kind of plot revenge to somebody who uh, wronged us, you know, or uh, you know, fantasize all kind of stuff, you know, what would happen to so and so if, uh, you know, they weren't around, or or whatever. And not only that, he also, uh, sensual fantasies, you know, allow our mind to just indulge in in (coughs) fantasies and so on that we know will never, ever take place, but, you know, we get some kicks, so to speak, out of, uh, you know, entertaining those things. Uh, And if you entertain them enough, then, at some point, they could uh, lead you to, uh, you know, doing again some behaviors that you are trying to, uh, to uh, overcome. So, and then the third and fourth right efforts is the effort to cultivate wholesome states that you don't yet have. So the wholesome states, like to practice generosity if you're a miserly type, you know. So practicing <laughs> generosity or sharing, uh, you know, some stuff uh, with others, or you know, helping others, uh, too, and uh, being generous with one's time, and helping others if know occasion uh, arises, and uh, of course, uh, you know, using, cultivating uh, the right speech, and uh, practicing uh, sila, uh, and and cultivating, but you know, the meditation practice, you know, developing the habit to get up early enough in the morning to uh, get in a decent period of meditation or to do some yoga and meditation in the morning. Even if it means getting up 30 minutes earlier or 45 minutes earlier the benefit that that's going to give you getting up earlier in the morning that extra let's say an hour is going to do you more benefit than an hour of sleep in most cases or you train yourself challenge yourself uh, to go to sleep earlier because you know nothing nothing comes from nothing and if if you want to you know cultivate uh, uh, dharma practice, then you have to apply this kind of efforts and you have to sort out one's priorities and uh, learning how to renounce. Like, you know, if, if you like to stay up two hours in a, you know, eleven or twelve o'clock at night just pouring over a bunch of internet stuff or, you know, indulging in, in, you know, internet tic-tac-toe and all this kind of stuff people waste hours on, you know, you, you got to discipline yourself. My brother plays solitaire on the computer <laughs> <laughs> stays up till eleven thirty at night. <laughs> but uh, so you know it's the, it's the effort to uh, you know cultivate those wholesome uh, qualities because they help to counter uh, the unskillful ones. and then the last two. Steps of the Eight-Four Path, as we've already mentioned, are right mindfulness and right concentration. And we've already been talking uh, about that in a general way. But the right uh, mindfulness usually means contemplation according to the four foundations of mindfulness. It means uh, being mindful of the body, mindful of feelings, mindfulness of the mind states, and mindfulness of Dhamma basically it's it's the four foundations of of mindfulness that you can you know read in the several you know texts and books uh, and there's a lot more to it than how it's often taught just uh, in certain places there's a lot more to that uh, there's those uh, instructions in mindfulness uh which includes an investigation of the Dhamma. Uh, and after all the different sections of the mindfulness sutta, like after the mindfulness of the body, it says, you know, the, the, the meditator understands how this body arises, how does it continue, and how does it eventually cease. He understands how these feelings arise, how do they continue by our feeding them, and how do they cease? And the same with mind states. How do these mind states arise? How do they continue? And how do they eventually cease? And the same with the, the contemplation of Dhamma, which is a, a deeper, a, a wider, more broader uh, uh, topic, but includes the seven factors of enlightenment. And it includes a realization of the four noble truths. Uh, and all of that comes before right concentration. Uh, well, uh, according to the, you know, the, the list of the Eightfold Path, but of course, it, all these different steps of the Eightfold Path don't necessarily one follows the other. They all become integrated, as uh, uh, I'm going to mention shortly. But and then the uh, right concentration as a some of you already have mentioned uh, it means uh, you know, trying to develop those levels of reaching the third, fourth, or first, second, third, and fourth uh, uh, jhana. But as I've already mentioned, through practicing the satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, and practicing the Seven factors of enlightenment. You attain jhana at the end of those seven factors of enlightenment is the is the stage of concentration, which means those levels of jhana. So you can reach them, having practiced mindfulness, cultivated wisdom, suppressed the hindrances, and then you enter those jhanas. And after that, at any moment, uh, one the mind could open and one could uh, realize, you know the Entering the stream or the, the stages of, of wisdom, the the meditation wisdom. So, uh, anyway, so those those eight stages or steps of the Noble Eightfold Path, as I mentioned, they're not necessarily practiced one after the other, but there is a logical sequence in that. Uh, But, uh, you know, they all help to uh, uh, strengthen each other. It's like a a bicycle wheel, okay? So, the Eightfold Path is normally depicted as a a wheel, an eight-spoked wheel, which is called the Dhamma Chakra, or the uh, the, the wheel of Dhamma, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, which the Buddha's uh, First Noble Truth, or the Buddha's uh, First sermon was about, but it, it, so it's sort of shaped like a an eight spoked wheel, so if you have a bicycle wheel and some of the spokes are broken or loose, and you get on the bike to ride it, then what will happen huh? yeah it'll be a, a not a very even smooth ride. you may get the, f- somewhere a little bit but you know, it's going to be rough to steer and so on, and eventually the bike may just collapse. Uh, So all of the spokes have to be uh, tightened evenly, and equally and evenly, to get the smoothest ride. So the same way with the uh, Noble Eightfold pop, that all those spokes have to be uh, uh, exercised. And a lot of people have trouble remembering eight things of the Eightfold Path. Uh, and that's why normally the, the eight steps are subdivided into three uh, umbrella groups called sila, samadhi, and panya. Or skillful conduct, uh, mental composure, and wisdom, or to use often other words, morality concentration and wisdom. But skillful behavior is a translation for morality, I think, is a more uh, accurate uh, type of uh, description. Or it's behavior in conformity with truth. It's behavior in conformity with the laws of nature. And the laws of nature is the law of karma. So it's, you know, behavior in, uh, in conformity with the laws of nature that, uh, you know, certain actions bring suffering, and other actions bring uh, non-suffering. <clears throat> so the uh, the first two steps of the Eightfold Path actually belong to the wisdom group. So right understanding and right thought actually belong to the panya or the wisdom group. Even, the, even though it's mentioned last, it, in reality it's, it's practiced first because without getting some kind of intellectual understanding, no one is going to practice. None of you would have come to a meditation course or come to the Bhavana Society if you hadn't somewhere, some point, picked up a book or heard a lecture, or a tape, or a YouTube talk by you know, somebody about the Dhamma. Am I wrong? How many people here first heard Buddhism through reading a book or hearing something on the internet? You know, probably ninety-nine percent. So <clears throat> So as I mentioned yesterday, that at least that initial intellectual understanding you know pricks your uh, interest, and then you get, go on thinking about it, then finally you realize yeah I guess i guess I better start practicing right speech, I guess you know, you know, after getting caught for telling some lies or people blaming you for to- telling their secrets or something or, or whatever so uh, you know, then you start uh, you know practicing the sila. And then you get an interest to meditate. Then you start to meditate. And then you realize all the hindrances that are blocking your meditation. What are they? Guilt, worry, remorse, fear, attachments, aversions, uh, getting lost in your sensual uh, thoughts or just other thoughts, doubts, confusion. You know, it's like solid wall thrown up in, in front of you. So you realize, yeah, I guess I better tighten up my sila a little more, you know. It's a, you practice the right speech a little more, and you practice the the right action a little more. And then as you stop doing those unskillful behaviors, then you realize that little by little, oh, when you meditate, there's less uh, you know, guilt, worry, remorse, and fear coming up, or less neurotic uh, uh, thoughts and, uh, con- that are connected with, uh, you know, those sensuality or aversion and so on. So you say, oh yeah, that's, you know, that, that's hopeful. And so you, you know, you try to practice the sila even more. And, and so you're practicing right speech and, and right action. And then maybe you wind up having a job, which uh, uh, causes you to sort of uh, either directly or indirectly, uh, you know, do some of those wrong livelihood uh, uh, occupations, you know, like being caught up in, you know, deceptive schemes that defraud or uh, deceive people in one way or another, or telling lies uh, about uh, various things. Anyway, you know, so many things. So you, you know, and if you're able to, then maybe you know, change one's profession to find something that doesn't uh, cause you these kind of uh, uh, conflicts of interest. So, and then each time, you know, as you're doing those things and you meditate, you see that your your mind is getting more calm because of these uh, distracting influences are so getting less and less, and so your meditation improves. And as your meditation improves, you see that the wisdom gets deeper. It goes from intellectual wisdom to a deeper level of of, uh, reflective wisdom. And that goes on and on and on, and then gradually you start getting deeper insights. Because that, as your wisdom increases, you see the loopholes in your sila. And so you you patch those loopholes. You know, you tighten up those loopholes in the sila, the mind giving in to his excuses why it should, you know, take a little glass of beer, or a glass of wine, and whatever it is, you know, or you know, go have a private affair or something. So, uh, you tighten up your sila, and as you go and meditate, then you realize, ah, you're able to get deeper concentration because of, of less of those types of uh, worries conflicts. And as the wisdom deepens, or the, the, uh, then you, you see how to tighten up the sila more. And then the the meditation deepens, and the, and the wisdom deepens more. And you keep on discovering more subtle loopholes, or even taking on extra sila. Like maybe if you're a layman, but you decide, well, maybe I'll, I'll you know, Follow the monk's rule of not eating afternoon. You know, cut down on that kind of attachment, or some other type, I'll stop going to the movies or stop going to entertainments because you see that that also has subtle influences on the mind. Right. So there's lots of ways that you can keep tightening up uh, the sila uh, and simplifying uh, the life because you see it's it's helping to in turn deepen those uh, other levels of, you know, your concentration and uh, wisdom. And then the happiness, the inward happiness and, and, and peace uh, that comes with the sustained uh, practice. So, you know, that's how, you know, all those, those things really help to help each other. Now, those three categories of sila, samadhi, and panya, they're, they're, they're given in an, an analogy of building a house. So if you want to build a house, especially in a northern climate where the ground freezes in the winter, you have to dig a trench, and you have to fill it with rocks or concrete, and then put on a normally a concrete slab, and you have a, a good foundation. Because if you build a house on a, a loose foundation, then when a flood comes, it may wash the house away. Or it'll wash the, whatever loose, flimsy foundation you might have had. So the sila is considered to be like building the foundation of the house. To withstand the floods. So what are the floods? Guilt, worry, remorse, and fear, some other things, but those are certainly the big ones, coming for when you, you broke a, a seal or something. You know, you told a lie, and oh my gosh, somebody's going to find out, and why she's looking over your shoulder. And, uh, so, that washes away whatever concentration you might have had. If you you know give in and, and break a seala here and there, then it's going to affect and weaken whatever med- concentration you might have had. So that's why a Sila is considered the foundation. So once you've got a good foundation, what's next? In building a house? Okay, you have to build up the four walls. So now, like this meditation hall, it has a good foundation. I'm, I'm the one of the ones who designed it and put it in. I know, you know, it's got a very, very solid foundation underneath it. And then we uh, build up these walls. And you have to use good construction techniques. And you have to, you know, interlock the, the corners, whether you're using brick or wood, and then the rafters. These rafters that go out like that, they keep the walls rigid. So that they withstand uh, uh, strong winds, because if a strong wind, like a hurricane or tornado, comes by, it'll just, you know, like toothpicks, just blow a house. And we see that on the pictures and all these tornadoes in the Midwest, you know, that are built out of wood, or there's other places, you know, they just get blown apart because probably they were using shoddy materials or just you know, not the proper techniques. So the concentration is like building the frame of the house on top of the, the found, uh, foundation, you build the frame of the house. And that's the concentration, which includes mindfulness also. Mindfulness and concentration and right effort. That group of uh, sila, Samadhi and Panya or Samadhi includes right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. And what are the winds? We mentioned the floods being uh, you know, guilt, worry, remorse and fear. And the winds are the eight worldly winds, or the eight worldly Dhammas. That means gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame and fame and defame and so people's lives revolve around this you know when you have a pleasure then the mind gets a so giddy and very nice but when it gets a lot of pain then it, you know goes down in the dumps and the same with gain and loss when you have a lot of money and a lot of gain and the stock market crashes and you lose everything then people commit suicide the same with praise or blame people praise you and you get elated and then something happens and they blame you and mm. so th- these are called the winds because they blow people's lives around they blow their mind around it's not uh, stable so the concentration helps to withstand those winds because through the concentration you're not easily uh, affected by the impermanence so basically it's the impermanence that shakes our the mind. So when you're developed in mindfulness and concentration, then uh, the mind is not easily shaken, like shaken by a, a strong itch that arises, or shaken by a fly that's crawling on your face, or a spider that's crawling on your your head, and so on. Yeah. You don't get so excited. Anyway. So, <clears throat> and then wisdom. Okay. Now we got the the foundation, we got the frame of the house. What's, what's last? The roof. I didn't mention the roof, the frame of the house, and the rafter, right? So, you know, you can't really live in a house without a roof, because if you don't have a roof and then the Canadian geese flying, uh, you know, south in the summer and drop some white stuff splat on your head, ugh you know or other things so the wisdom is like the crowning glory of of the roof it keeps out the elements so we can live in that house all four seasons you know live in it comfortably and have our thermostat set so the temperature is always even that's like having mindfulness you know being grounded in the present moment and, uh, the, mi- the middle path, not going to extremes, you know, keeping that thermostat set the, yeah, you know, in, in the middle, not too hot, not too cold. And so, that's how we can, you know, live in this body-mind house uh, comfortably, where the, where the Eightfold Path allows us to build that type of. Uh, spiritual house, you could say. Now, coming back to the eight individual factors, there's three of those eight factors that are called the, the three pillars. Bhante Ji calls them the uh, three pillars of the eightfold path the three most important uh, steps of the Eightfold path, And what do you think the first one would be? What? Right understanding. Because without right understanding, you can't do anything. Uh, and then, Uh, The next two could be interchanged, they're both equally important, but uh, the next two, anybody have an idea what the next one would be? Mindfulness. And the third one, effort, right understanding. Right mindfulness and right effort. And I'll explain why. Because mindfulness, I mean, excuse me, uh, right understanding understands what is right according to Dhamma, according to Sila. And it understands what is wrong. Again, according to Dhamma, according to Sila. So uh, keeping the precepts is right. Breaking all the precepts would be uh, wrong, and any other types of unskillful uh, negative uh, behaviors that bring suffering would be considered uh, wrong actions. I know, I know people don't like to use those terms, right or wrong, but uh, you know, just for the sake of uh, argument, right? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so, when a wrong action, when a when a wrong thought enters your mind, let's go back a second. So, right understanding, it knows what is right thought, and it knows what is wrong thought. It knows what is right speech, it knows what is wrong speech. It knows what is right action, it knows what is wrong action. It knows what is right effort, it knows what is wrong effort. It knows what is right mindfulness, it knows what is wrong mindfulness. It knows what is right concentration, and it knows what is wrong concentration. So, uh, according to that, if a wrong thought enters your mind, like the thought to uh, tell a lie, for example, you're entertaining some thought, to, maybe to tell a lie on your income tax or records to, you know, get something or any other thing. Right, uh, right understanding would say, that's wrong. So mindfully you observe, ah, this thought is entering the mind. And right understanding, observe, this is a wrong thought. And right effort drives that wrong thought out of the mind and replaces it with right thought. And so the same way with, when the intention for a speech arises, Uh, the mindfulness uh, sees, uh, detects that urge to to speak, and the understanding says this is going to be wrong speech, and then right effort is the effort to uh, not say the wrong speech, but instead say uh, the right speech. And so the same, thing plays out with all the other uh, steps. So that's why those three are the most important. Uh, And are called the the three pillars of the Eightfold Path. So right understanding, right mindfulness, and right effort. In that way we can, uh, because a lot of people, you know, they say, You know, they don't even know what is right speech. Like you can see all the the speech that goes on in the media and everything else. And, uh, you know, it's it's mostly wrong speech. According to Dhamma, anyway, frivolous talk. And, uh, you know, so many other, uh, and also actions too. All these uh, television shows, not all of them, but a lot of them, you know soap operas and all this kind of stuff. (coughs) My mother used to watch (laughs) soap operas. Uh, So, uh, now, where's that question box? Anyway, I wanted to also finish the, uh, the talk about the right mindfulness and right Uh, Concentration, because there was a question uh, about that last night that I uh, didn't uh, fully answer. Uh, And, you know, the practice of concentration, if you practice concentration just with the idea to uh, uh, quieten the mind and to reach some state of inner quietness and maybe you know, see some inner light and or just to experience uh, these nice, pleasant, uh, blissful feelings that arise. And you, you practice it mainly just for that purpose. And as I mentioned, by doing that, by the sheer power of the concentration, it kind of pushes the thoughts down. It pushes the five hindrances down. And then temporarily the mind becomes uh, peaceful. But when you come out of that concentration, then as I mentioned, gave that example about uh, the good meditations and bad meditations. If you have a good meditation, then the next time maybe expect a bad one because that pressures the top of the unconscious mind and then the, it releases stuff from inside. So if you practice concentration just for that purpose of gaining some I- uh, inner quiet. And come out, it's like that. It's like, it's the simile of a jack in a box Okay, the, the head of a jack in a box is a is a clown or a, a, a devil, let's say. In Ger- Germany, they call it a devil. Kosten Teufel. Anyway, uh, so this clown's head represents the ego and all of its defilements of greed and hatred, but basically the ego. So you push the head down in the box, and then you put the lid on it, right? So the head is hidden. What happens when you take the lid off? Boing! The head comes back up. Sometimes with a lot of power. Why is that? Why does it come up with a lot of power? Yeah, the spring was compressed. And so in a similar way, if we don't develop wisdom, if we just practice concentration by whatever methods, uh, just to suppress the thoughts, that doesn't really get at the roots, and so they'll come back up again. You might feel, quite nice and well for a few hours after uh, coming out of that meditation, but when you start intermingling with people again, uh, your buttons get pushed and then uh, the old defilements come back up again. So that concentration alone does not necessarily purify uh, the roots of uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. <clears throat> but in Vipassana meditation, we don't necess- we're not trying to suppress our thoughts. So we're not using a, a tiny little object to exclusively focus on. We want to maintain awareness. But we do develop initial concentration by, as I've been mentioning, uh, you know, using the movements here, which is not so tiny of a you know it's more open. Uh, but it's still concentration, it's still a very limited area. So you're using that and you stay mindful enough to notice, uh, you know, you don't get sucked into that deep uh, mental quietness, but you gain enough quietness and and centeredness to be able to easily start uh, noticing things going on uh, around you. And then, you know, enduring that pain. You know, enduring itches, and applying whatever right understanding you have to, to uh, you know, undermine that attachment to them and uh, not reacting to them. So, the the the, through that practice of the mindfulness, you learn how to become centered, but in the midst of things still going on around you, still with sounds going on around, and other body sensations, and even thoughts. You don't have to completely stop your thoughts either, but you train yourself not to get lost in them. So they may come up, last for a moment, but your mindfulness sees them, your right effort uh, pushes them out, and uh, leaves the mind uh, back in the flow of moment-to-moment awareness. And then gradually, eventually, you see the—you know—when that builds up to a high level, uh, you gain the insights into impermanence and especially of no self. When you come to that point where the—you uh, know—the ego starts to uh, dissolve by not uh, reacting to sense stimuli, you know the ego starts to uh, dissolve, and, and that's you know, the l- l- wisdom of you know anatta, or no self, which seriously weakens the infrastructure of ego consciousness. It's like pulling, if you have a four corner building and you pull one corner out of it, it may not totally fall down, but it's gonna, it's gonna seriously weaken that infrastructure. So that's what happens with the insights, especially the insight into no self uh, the insight into all three, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And something else that's very interesting. You see, there's three aspects of uh, the, our mental experience. There's the knower, which is the I, you know, the, the person. And then the known, which is the object of You know, hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking. Those are the objects in the knower here. Uh, So, the knower is on one side, the object is on the other side. See, the knower is here, and the object is, you know, the sounds or sights coming in, the smells, tastes. What's in the middle? Knowing. Knowing is in the middle. Knowing is the third, the missing link. So we have the knower, the known, and knowing. Knowing means awareness. But we hardly know anything about awareness. Real awareness, not consciousness. Awareness. That's in the middle. But the mind, what happens when the the senses are impinged, the ego jumps over, is in such a a frantic rush to gobble the object, it jumps over that and and gets the object. And so it bypasses awareness. But when you delay that jumping of the mind then you get a little inkling about the space between the the ego and the object the knower and the known and you start to get a little inkling about awareness the buffer zone right <clears throat> and so in vipassana meditation you know there's two ways you can approach The breaking of the cycle, the the easiest and most common one is you give up the attachment to the objects. Although only a very rare few people could immediately start observing the ego and let it go before they've actually let go of the objects. So usually it's we work on the objects first because that's the easiest ones to observe. So through the practice of mindfulness, we become aware of, oh, just hearing, hearing, just hearing vibration. Seeing, seeing. Smelling, smelling. Not allowing the mind to immediately jump. You create that buffer zone. And the buffer zone is created through the concentration, through the connection to the breath, normally. Or the connection on just remembering, sitting, sitting. Uh, Or maybe the, you know, sensations like your buttocks or feet hands touching together. Any of those acts as a kind of a anchor to the present moment. So as you start to let go of the objects, then more of the knowing uh, becomes evident. You you start to uh, experience the knowing. And when you're no longer going out to the objects, as I mentioned before, the ego has nothing to stand on because the ego lives in direct relationship to the objects that it's identified with and has the strongest attachments or aversion with. <clears throat> so once you reach that state of, you know, like, uh, you know, the uh, the, the spider web, uh, that awareness of the spider web, or at least a good state of awareness, where where the mind isn't going out so much. The mind might start to go out, but you check it with mindfulness and wisdom, and you know it uh, comes back. And so, uh, the the more it comes back and rests in the present, then that the, the knowing becomes more evident. And then you turn you know and this is this is that stage of the empty house but inside the house still it's not going to be totally empty yet but that sense of i can still be there because this is what happens to a lot of people when they meditate because i know people have come to me in interviews and told me these things and it has been my experience even also in the my early years but you know they, they get to a state of concentration and everything becomes very quiet and they're, they're feeling these blissful feelings and kind of, you know, everything is really, really quiet. And all of a sudden they're gripped by a fear because it feels like they're being sucked down a black hole and the mind gets afraid because everything they've thought familiar, because their, their thoughts have stopped. In deep concentration, or mostly, and not thinking about past or future anymore, and so there's like everything that they were identified with is, it was vanishing, and that's very scary. And their sense of the ego was starting to vanish, and they panicked. Maybe not on an intellectual level, but from the un, from deep inside, from the ignorance. Uh, maybe intellectually they would like to let it go, but. It's it's a it's a whole another kettle of fish. The ego. It's it's not intellectual. It's it's in the cells and atoms even of our body, or at least the cells. Uh, so <clears throat> that's why uh, people, you know, can't. It's difficult for them to go deeper in the meditation because of that uh, that, uh, that ego. That sort of, it's the last frontier, it's the last barrier. All the objects can disappear. Or people get that tranquility and they think, oh, I'm such a good meditator now. They open their eyes, they look at somebody else snoring. Oh yeah, I'm so good. So that, that ego is the last to go. So therefore you have to turn your wisdom onto the ego. And, and see that last trace of the I that's still there, and just understand it's just a bubble. It's a source of suffering. What is it, anyway? And not even to pay attention to that. Pay attention to the awareness. Now you've got the ego here and the, and the knowing, right? The known has already disappeared. So you've got the knowing, and you've got still the, the subtle sense of I is there. And which is happier? Which is nicer? As you focus on the knowing, then the, the last traces of the, and you're no longer building up the known, the last traces of the self can vanish. And that's basically what the process of uh, the Vipassana is. And because of the, of the wisdom that has undermined the tight clinging and delusions to holding on to all of the five aggregates, you know, so uh, so that is the you know the kind of you know wisdom that's cultivated in there that destroys that spring of the jack in the box. You know, when you when you get those deep insights, and so you know the first time you get a deep insight into no self, it's like you're going into the the box with a pair of wire cutters and you cut it 25%, you cut the spring through 25%. That's the first stage of enlightenment, entering the stream. It breaks the three fetters. I'm not gonna go into explaining all of them, it's too takes too long. But uh, you can read it in books. Uh, so, Now the spring has been weakened 25%. So when you push the head back in the box again, or when the head comes out again, it comes up with only 75% of its previous power. Then you go on meditating again, over and over, and at some point you get another deep, powerful insight. And it's like cutting through the spring another 25% of weight. So when the head comes up again, it only comes up with 50% power. Then you go on meditating again, and at some point uh, you get another powerful insight, and like cutting another 25% through. And then the next time the head comes out, it only comes up with 25% of its previous power. Quite weak, I mean the ego. There's still a tiny little trace even in the mind of a never returner. It's called mana or conceit. But it's very weak. And then finally, when one reaches the full enlightenment, it's like the last part of the spring being cut through. And when you take the lid off, nothing comes out. That means greed, hatred, and delusion. So that is just an analogy of sort of the difference between uh, the effects of the Vipassana meditation as the effects of just attaining concentration but without wisdom. But the concentration is necessary, but the problem is people get st- a lot of people get stuck in the bliss and or other even psychic powers and so on that may come out of attaining. These states, and they get sidetracked, and don't go on to uh, develop wisdom. So that's why, the, you know, the wisdom aspect is is emphasized so much, and that, uh, and actually, the Eightfold Path, the way it's explained in Right con- it doesn't talk about liberation. It, the path is leading up to the edge of the well. Following all those steps, right understanding, right mindfulness, and right concentration, then there's actually a tenfold path. Manthaji has mentioned this, which is called right knowledge and right liberation. You know, reaching the right mindfulness and right concentration isn't necessarily a guarantee for enlightenment because all so many factors have to be. you know, coming together, but it's attaining those stages of uh, magga and pala, which is each of those four stages. Insights I mentioned is a right knowledge, and each one has its own level of liberation: liberation from the three fetters, liberation from the the next two fetters, and the liberation from the next uh, the rest of the fetters. So. That right knowledge and right liberation is actually the the you know the, the end of the practice, so even the noble eightfold path itself only leads up to the brink and you have to make that jump into the unknown that means the ego you have to uh, you know cut that uh, cord of the ego if you want to really attain freedom so anyway i just mentioned those things to try to round out that uh, that understanding cuz <clears throat> and just to to show the how both the you know mindfulness and concentration do have to be uh, developed and they have to be uh, balanced uh, but one has to also you know understand uh, the process uh, that's involved, and also to understand the pitfalls or the uh, stumbling blocks that uh, you know can occur if uh, people, you know, people hear about jhanas and you go, oh yeah, I want to attain a jhana, 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 and so you know they, whatever they heard about it or the bliss or getting powers from them or, or whatever, but. Again, it's not easy to uh, reach those uh, levels. And again, mindfulness comes first, because again, in all those lists, the Buddha recommends develop the four foundations of mindfulness first. And the reason is because you attain those jhanas easily after having developed the the four foundations of, of mindfulness. Okay. So I think that may be enough to kind of finish up. uh, But, uh, you know, if you have any final questions, you can write them down for this evening. And as I mentioned in tomorrow's uh, closing talk, I'm going to talk about some, uh, you know, practical issues about, you know, practicing, keeping up the practice of mindfulness meditation, Dhamma practice, and in the daily life.